Uh, well, good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to our Aerospace Nation series today. Um, we're really fortunate to have my good friend and former Air Staff colleague, retired General Phil Breedlove with us today. He served as the commander of US European Command, as well as the 17th Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. So I really can't think of anyone uh, better to help shed some light into what's going on in the conflict in Ukraine uh, today. So General Breedlove, whose call sign is Juana, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Uh, and to kick things off, what I'd like to do is give you the opportunity uh, to make a couple of observations, uh, opening remarks on your main takeaways from what's going on uh, in the in the war in Ukraine. So you've got the stick, Bona. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I, I'm glad we're at call sign level because I can't remember a time I've ever called you Dave in my life. So <laughs> I will refer to you as Zatar as well. Um, and uh, what I really want to do is what I call roll a couple of grenades out on the table, let them go off, and then we'll see where that leads us. And and I really look forward to not only yours, but the questions of, of those out there. And uh, you and I were just chatting before. We were both uh, fighter pilots and been through a lot of debriefs. My, my skin is pretty thick, so uh, I don't have any issues with, with uh, taking the fiery barbs if there are some coming back. So just three things to sort of set the stage. And a couple of these should not surprise you. But I think maybe the latter will be a little bit uh, provocative. First of all, we all know and understand that this is a war of choice by Mr. Putin. He, he absolutely contrived this war to accomplish some objectives. And that will be the next thing we talk about. But before we get there, why do we end up again with this sort of conflict in Europe? And I would offer the following thoughts. After the fall of the wall, we tried to make a, a, a friend or a partner out of Russia. I called it a period of hugging the bear. In 08, uh, he demonstrated that he was no partner. He uh, invaded and occupied Georgia and remains there in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And yet we still didn't get the message from uh, him about what we, he was about. We were in such a rush to get back to our peace dividends and cutting our militaries and uh, retrying to hug the bear that we really didn't see where Mr. Putin was heading with his nation uh, and his uh, armed forces. And so after 08, we, uh, our approach to Russia was inadequate to the task that we found in front of us. I would offer to you that that's one of the reasons we ended up in 2014 when I was the SACUR with the first two invasions of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, first invading and occupying and now continuing to occupy Crimea and then later invading the Donbass, leaving behind a skeleton structure and enabling his proxy forces in the Donbass region of Ukraine. Once again, the way the West, and I include the West, but I can point firmly at our own nation, addressed that particular conflict was inadequate to task. And so we sent a clear message. And now here we are again, uh, you know, with Russia invading uh, Ukraine all over again because of, I believe, a failure in the first two instances to come to appropriate action after those. And so now we find ourselves in a conflict that everybody is focused on Ukraine and we need to be focused on our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are, who are getting, you know, they're giving as, as much as they're getting, but the country of Ukraine is just being smashed in the process. And so we are concerned about them, but um, I hope you will agree with me when I say that it's bigger than Ukraine. If you remember the two documents that Mr. Putin handed to us about a month before this thing started, he gave us two sort of proposed uh, new agreements and he wanted them to be signed and legally binding. In fact, he basically demanded it 
And when he did, he said, or there will be other, uh, other actions. We now know what that was. We see it playing out because we refuse to sign them. But if you've read those documents, and I know, Zaytar, you have, but if those in the audience, if you haven't read them, you need to. Because those two documents are way bigger than just Ukraine. In fact, I'll paraphrase my own words and just say that I believe that those two documents are an attempt to completely reconstruct or restructure the security architecture of Eastern Europe. And he called for us to move out of the, uh, the uh, bordering nations. He called for all weapons to be moved back. He's trying to reconstruct a time and a place where he can have his influence in those countries and the West would not have influence in those countries and restructuring what I would call the old Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. So while we are concerned and we need to be focused on how to help our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, we have to keep our mind focused on the fact that this, in my opinion, is much, much bigger than Ukraine in Mr. Putin's mind. And we forget that or we overlook that at our peril now. Okay, so those are my uh, first two. The last one's a little bit more controversial because I can tell you that there are people in our capital that are going to completely disagree with what I'm about to say. You and I know, uh, and others know, when we deal with either nuclear weapons or conventional weapons, in the grand scheme of things, we want our opponent to be deterred, and we would rather that we not be deterred. And in any sort of operation uh, uh, of either conventional or nuclear weapons, anytime we are in a concern with an opponent, we want to gain and maintain the initiative in any sort of issue that we're working. I would offer to you and to the audience that in our current state, our nation is completely deterred and the NATO alliance is completely deterred. And Mr. Putin is not deterred uh, in either way, against our alliances, against us, or against Ukraine. I would also offer that Mr. Putin has the initiative and we don't. Things that I like to bring to the light when we talk about this is every time our leaders and the leaders of the West get in front of a microphone and a, and a, and a, um, a, t a camera, the first thing out of their mouth are all the things they're not going to do. And they emphasize over and over, we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that. And what they say more than once is that, you know, we are going to defend NATO. So what does that say to those that are outside of NATO? That they're not going to be defended? I think so. And then as we watched again, our senior leadership coming into this this uh, operation, we did what I think I have described as passive deterrence, passive deterrence. We kept saying, if he does this, then we'll do that. If we, he does this, then we'll do this. And uh, that is passive by definition. And also to my second point, seeds the initiative to Mr. Putin because we will be reacting to him as opposed to having an active deterrence whereby we act to preclude him from doing something. Okay, so I've gone longer than I wanted to. Those are my three grenades. I stand ready. The heaters are warmed up and uncaged. Let's roll. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for those insights. And, uh, you know, for the audience, we really didn't uh, pre-coordinate this. I didn't know what remarks uh, Joan Breedlove was going to make, but, um, I, you know, I, it's, it's great to hear your comments because I have to tell you, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, to date, Putin's rhetoric is doing more to deter action by NATO to assist Ukraine than NATO is doing to deter Putin from his atrocious, inhumane assaults against the Ukrainian people. And what I would share with the audience is it's time for America to reverse this situation by providing the Ukrainians the tools that they need to fight and win. Um, furthermore, I'd offer that the actions of the administration 
in deferring to Putin for fear of his use of nuclear weapons is sending the message to every potential adversary that they should acquire nuclear weapons as rapidly as possible because U.S. isn't going to interfere with their malign activity as a result. Now, I get it. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. The risk of escalation is ever present regardless of what actions the West takes to support Ukraine. Uh, Putin's already shown he'll manufacture a pretext when his adversaries are too smart to give him one. So um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll just wrap up my response to your remarks, uh, uh, General Breedlove, by offering that I believe uh, all is fair in providing weapons to Ukraine up to U.S. NATO direct participation against the Russians in combat. And can, uh, I, can I two-finger that? Yeah. Another disappointing trend I'm starting to see as as our uh, Ukrainian brothers and sisters are actually doing a pretty good job on the battlefield. There there appears to be this concern that they might go offensive. And so now you hear this rhetoric. Everybody's talking about giving them defensive weapons. And we had this conversation in 2014. You know, first of all, a defensive weapon is we can argue that all day, all by itself. But it's the attitude that worries me. The attitude is the signal that we're saying it's okay for Russia to do offensive things. It's okay for Russia to fight from their land into Ukraine, but it's not okay for Ukraine to take the fight to Russia. And I think that's another thing that needs that we have been deterred from talking about. Yeah, no, I'll double underline that one with the fact, the fact Okay, it's not opinion, it's fact. Weapons are not offensive or defensive in and to themselves. It's how they are used. Exactly. And it's important to remind folks that it was Russia that invaded Ukraine, not the other way around. So my perspective is every weapon that's being used by the Ukrainians falls in the category of defensive. Uh, so um, uh, I tell you what, before we... We, we continue. I want to remind the audience that uh, feel free to raise your hand using the function on the app out there uh, and we'll get to the or submit a question using the Q&A window anytime during our discussion. And we'll get to those questions. So it, let me continue our conversation by winding the clock back a bit to something you already mentioned, um, because I think there are a lot of people were skeptical of the initial assessments and were ultimately taken by surprise that Putin decided to invade. You already mentioned, you know, Putin's invasion of Georgia. I, I think that's where this extends back to. I mean, he, he pursued subsequent offensive actions. He didn't receive much opposition uh, or suffer any adverse consequences. So we, what's your take on this? Putting aside the high side so, of how things have actually played out, why do you think Putin ultimately decided to act? As I said a couple of times, and a little bit provocatively, our, our actions were inadequate to task. You know, uh, a nation has multiple instruments of power. I like to, because I'm a fighter pilot, I like to use the most simple one, dime, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. And when we're dealing with Russia and Mr. Putin over the years, we are fairly locked into that cylinder of excellence of economic tools, and clearly they are sanctions. And we rely almost completely on sanctions to try to deal with Mr. Putin. And, and, and sometimes, and frankly, I have heard it now in some very private conversations, uh, we're celebrating these wonderful sanctions that we've put on and all this hardship. And so uh, let's just agree, let's agree that sanctions are hurting Russia, they are hurting the Russian people, they are hurting the Russian economy. But what they are not doing, what they are not doing is changing Mr. Putin's actions. And that is the measure of merit. I don't revel in smashing the Russian economy and ruining life for Russian people. I don't think it's them we're fighting against. I would like to change Mr. Putin's actions. And so we have yet in 08, in 14, or in the lead up to this, we have yet to take active deterrent measures that would change Mr. Putin's actions. Yeah, very good. If I can uh, kind of 
uh, jump on your your remarks there, uh, Juana, from a strategic perspective, which you know folks understandably haven't spent a lot of time focusing on. I believe that what's at play here is that the capacity of the United States to deter conflict has significantly eroded over the last 30 years. And if, frankly, that's part of why Putin took the actions that he has. He sensed weakness on the part of the United States. Exactly. And he's taking advantage of that. And just like you said, sanctions didn't deter Putin, and they're not going to change his calculus. Unity among European nations didn't deter Putin. Only U.S. military strength would have deterred his aggression. Uh, and clearly, we've lost that capacity today. So my opinion is that Russian actions should be a wake-up call to rebuild the U.S. military. Because today, as you well know, we're half the strength that we were during Desert Storm. And we've declined from the ability to fight two major regional conflicts at a time to only one today. So only by achieving the degree of strength necessary to defeat Chinese aggression in Asia and Russian aggression in Europe, simultaneously can we deter either of these situations from occurring. And that's what the baseline of the new national defense strategy should be when it comes out this year. Okay, um, what's your assessment of the response from Western countries to Russia's military aggression, although I, we have an indicator of what you think. But uh, on the positive side, are you surprised at the level of coordination and unity uh, that we're seeing? Uh, and what can be done to maintain that positive momentum uh, beyond the short term? Let's get the latter first, because it's easy. I mean, yes, there has been a uh, uh, I think a wonderful, if there's any benefit of what this, this criminal has done, it has been that it has awakened some of old NATO and forced us closer together. And, and now we see nations uh, re-evaluating their investment. The most startling, of course, is Germany. Thank you uh, to the Germans because they are you know, you and I served alongside them in Europe. These are our friends. We're not worried about them taking over Europe again. They need to get over that. We, we want them to be strong and capable allies and partners like they were when we saw the, the mighty Bundeswehr and the Luftwaffe of the 70s and 80s. But um, yes, some really good things have happened. And I'm, I have hopes for this emergency meeting, although I think we need to temper those hopes coming out of the meeting. But, but back to your, the first half of your question, a, a lot of what we can do is time to, is, is driven by time, like when we either did or didn't do it. Our opportunity to really militarily influence I, what happened in Ukraine was before Mr. Putin came across the border. We should have taken actions then. Then we should have thought about a no-fly zone. Or then we should have thought about, well, frankly, all the way back to 14, part of our recommendations were that we begin to build military capability in Ukraine to avoid future issues, uh, exactly like we're seeing now. So if we'd have taken action back then to help them in the air and on the sea, because we were helping them on the ground, but we did very, very, let me say it one more time, very little helping them in the air and on the sea. And if we had taken that time to do what we're trying to rush into right now, we might've precluded this. If they'd have had a strong air force that could have held the Russians at risk, you and I remember what the, the highway of death looked like coming out of Kuwait. Think of that 40 mile long pile up on the northwest side of um, Kiev. A few A-10s in there and this thing would have been over by now. Okay, some really talented warthog drivers would have come out of there, uh, you know, as poster boys and girls. And so you know, the fact of the matter is, in a temporal sense, we missed opportunities because we were in this passive deterrence as opposed to active deterrence and taking action to prepare for this not to happen that might have changed Mr. Putin's uh, calculus, as you said. And, and, and he recognizes strength. He doesn't 
typically stop until he runs into steel. Uh, words don't do a lot stopping Mr. Putin. And he watched us back up from red lines in the past, and I'm not going to make this political by pointing them out, but we've drawn some red lines and then we've scooted back from them so fast that he, ha he understands how the West works when they're threatened with things like tactical nukes, chemical and bio weapons. So um, there are things that would have been an option to us then that as you and I have talked about before may not be an option to us now, such as the no-fly, et cetera. I right, know, thanks for that. Now, um, a lot's been made of the Russian military underperforming relative to expectations. And, and one that uh, both of us are uh, intimately aware of is their inability uh, to establish their superiority over Ukraine. That in particular has been really puzzling. It has. And I'm sorry for interrupting, but no, go ahead. you and I know how hard uh, we work in the United States Air Force to do seed. You know, I flew the F-16 for nearly 20 years before I became a seed qualified pilot. And that was hard, especially to get good enough to be an instructor at it. You know, seed is not something you just walk out the door and say, we're going to go bomb some S-400s. Okay. And we work hard at it. And we saw it working in Desert 1 and 2. I mean, we have done this and we know how hard it is. We, I think, had assumed that Russia knew how to do this. And it's pretty clear to me now that they do not because they are still being held at bay by a relatively small number of SAMs and a relatively small number of, uh, of MiGs. And, and so uh, I think that uh, much like the fall of the wall, you remember Zatar when the wall came down and we started flying with the East German Air Force and others, we learned a lot of things. We unlearned some things that we thought we knew. And I think what we see in today, and I don't mean to be flippant, but we always talk about the 10 foot tall Russian military. Well, maybe they're really five foot eight or 10, you know, and, and we can go toe to toe with them here. So I, I, I think that that is a problem we saw. And clearly, clearly, the old adage that amateurs talk ops and professionals talk logistics have come to bite uh, Mr. Putin in the butt on the ground. I think that his assumptions about how fast the war would go and what they needed to do logistically were grossly uh, mismatched to reality. And, and that's come to bite him in the fanny. Yeah, I know. You anticipated the rest of my question there. I mean, I, it's uh, it's very clear that they weren't adequately trained or, or prepared uh, for uh, this kind of an operation. Uh, and now they're rather clumsily reverting to a strategy based on inflicting terror yeah. uh, to ultimately wear out the Ukrainian people. And frankly, uh, as we've seen around the world, that's really backfired on them. And just like we, we just talked about them not being able to do seed, I'm also fairly unimpressed with their combined arms capability. We, you know, we, as you know, work awfully hard to do that. Young Captain Philip Breedlove went to serve with 2nd Brigade 3rd ID as a TAC-P, and I learned so much about how we integrate fires and why we do what we do to support the Army and why we need guys like you in the Twin Tail um, giving us air superiority, et cetera, et cetera, and how all this fits together. And what we haven't seen in Ukraine is Russia fitting it together. Um, uh, I think that as painful as red flag and NTC and some of these things were when we were young fellas, um, what it prepared us for is to do the jobs that we have done, not perfectly, but better in our conflicts and I think that Mr. Putin and his Air Force commander are going to have to have a conversation about how they do their training and exercises, because it appears they've come up short. Yeah, it's almost like you've got an army general in charge of the Russian aerospace force. Uh, but, but I won't go much farther on that one. Uh, but they are finding out that this thing called multi-domain operations uh, is not something you just wave your hand across and have it uh, magically happen. As you say, it requires uh, a constant training uh, and proficiency in order to be able to do well. Um, 
now, Buana, President Zelensky um, has asked for the establishment of a no-fly zone to prevent the Russian air forces from operating over all or part of Ukraine. Um, the U.S. and NATO are not likely to go there for, for obvious escalatory reasons. So that kind of begs the question of what's the next best fallback for Ukraine to suppress Russian aggression from the sky? Um, you've, you've come out uh, earlier with a uh, uh, on board with a proposal for possibly setting up a humanitarian no-fly zone uh, solely for humanitarian purposes. Could you expand on your thoughts um, with respect to that idea? Yeah, and, and um, before we go there, let me also put out there some, some challenges then in what he actually asked for. If you listen to what they say, they say close the sky. Well, to him, that means also stop the missiles, and, uh, you know, their airplanes, and to some degree is asking us to also stop the artillery. So closing the sky is a much bigger task than what a typical no-fly zone would do. And we would have to set expectation management from him, even if we did went in and did a full military no-fly, like Northern Watch or Southern Watch or whatever, if we did that, it still would not be able to address missiles and things uh, the way he wants it to happen. So. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think, the mission statement is, that they're asking for is not well matched to even just a no-fly zone. And we need to uh, acknowledge that. Um, and and you, you know, we've talked about this and laughed. I actually, early in this conflict, came out for a full military no-fly zone. My, the first foreign policy interview, I, I admitted the challenges. I admitted the risks. But at that stage of the game, I was looking for us to find a way to help uh, um, the Ukrainian military in any way that we could. And clearly, clearly our leaders are deterred in that manner. We are not going in there. And maybe for the right reasons, we could have that debate. But I think I understand the reasoning, but we're not going there. Since that time, what we have seen is humanitarian convoys used as shooting galleries. We've seen criminal action by letting them get on the road and then shooting them up. And, and this is, uh, this of course, uh, was used in the beginning. If you remember, Russia offered humanitarian quarters to the east, back into Russia and into Belarus. And you know what's gonna happen to the people that go that direction. Um, and but they shot up the ones going to the West. And so there was a call for how do we protect these folks? And, and I'm not um, I'm not belittling our friends. You know, a few of the people, but there are a lot of folks that want to talk about humanitarian quarters and even some really important folks of our, from our past talking about uh, humanitarian airlift a la Berlin airlift into Lviv or other places to get stuff out there because you know, we're now having problems getting through to distrib distributing some of the things that are going in. And, and they're, uh, they wanna allow some of us whose voices are a little easier out there to, to make the points for them. But we have several groups calling for protecting humanitarian quarters, establishing a humanitarian uh, uh, airlift, and then having the ability to protect both. And so I have greatly amended, and, and there are a, a large group of people who uh, are with me on this, have greatly amended the request to consider a humanitarian no-fly zone only up when humanitarian operations are moving. And under an ROE, you know that air, every no-fly zone is different depending on the spins and the ROE. But under such an ROE that would say, uh, during the time that we are doing this humanitarian operation, we will be flying escort or cap or whatever you want to call it. And uh, we will not fire unless fired upon. And we will not fire on you unless you fire upon those that we're protecting. And, you know, lawyers would have to work this all out, but that's the gist of it. Um, a much less bellicose option. And, and frankly, you and I both know the irrationality of Mr. Putin, he would probably challenge him and we would be off to the races. So I think what we have to do here 
is have a conversation about risk. Right now, frankly, I believe we have senior leaders that believe as long as we keep doing what we're doing, there is no risk to us in the rest of this war. I maybe will do it in a subsequent question, but I would tell you, I believe risk is building every day. Every day that Mr. Putin's army underperforms, we run the risk of him doing something even more stupid. Yeah, all good, uh, all, all good points. I, I applaud those who have the intent of resupply with humanitarian uh, lift, but uh, you see, I, I like to bring folks back to reality in that I think we're up to the Russians intentionally hitting over 44 hospitals, 161 schools, um, and their latest uh, act of terrorism is to strike a frappin' shopping mall in Kiev. So what would prevent them from not wanting to attack a humanitarian airlift? Uh, and, and then we're, you know, then we're right in the middle of direct combat. So um, I believe uh, that what we need to do um, is uh, to assist the Ukrainians in providing the weapons and the tools uh, that they can use uh, to enforce their own set of air superiority operations. I mean, just like Winston Churchill told Franklin Roosevelt in 41, um, give us the tools and we'll finish the job. I think that's what Zelensky's saying. And I think that's where, you know, it's not an either or, it's not binary. It's not, okay, a no-fly zone or nothing. It's give them the tools. So if we provide them, the, the for example, and, and I don't want us to get down a rat hole here, but the MiG-29s to Ukraine, those are aircraft that are already operating. Even if they're just used for spares, that will allow them to sustain the forces that they do have uh, that, that are getting worn uh, hard because they've been flown hard and used. And so that would provide the Ukrainians the ability to operate systems they are experienced with, uh, to, to continue to put pressure on the Russian Air Force, which, oh, by the way, uh, over the last couple of days has significantly reduced their operations. Uh, and to folks who say, well, you know, the MiG-29 is not that good. Well, wait a second. It's shot down so many. Uh, they've shot down many Russian aircraft uh, today. So um, I think we just need to increase the weapons that matter and put them in the hands of the Ukrainians uh, as sort of a first step. I, I, I do not disagree with that. And, and your remarks about uh, getting them the tools they want, we're in violent agreement there. Um, this, we, we, we are late to need getting MiGs to them. And frankly, we are late to need getting S-300s and other things they have asked for to them. We're, I, I guess we're gonna have more conversations in NATO at Brussels over the next day because I don't think any have flown, have, have gone across the line to them yet. Um, and, uh, and, and while it's not the subject of air power, the same thing on uh, coastal defense cruise missiles. As we are reading the, the intelligence now, looking the intelligence, we're looking at probably a, a amphibious assault, if not uh, a, a bombardment of Odessa from the water. And uh, the, the Ukrainians had given them massive problems with mines and things, and they're starting to sort that out. And I, I do not know for sure, but I have by word of mouth that the Ukrainians actually used a javelin on a smaller uh, watercraft of the Russians and sank it. So the, the Ukrainians are trying to do the best they can with what they have, but they've been asking and screaming for coastal defense cruise missiles and we have sent them none. We, the Royal, we, the West have sent them none. So there's a lot of things, like you said, Zaytar, we need to give them the tools they seem to be pretty good at using them. Yeah, and I, I hope, I certainly hope we do that uh, quietly and behind the scenes, not uh, uh, create another diplomatic uh, kerfuffle uh, and, and spread it all over the, uh, the, the media. Uh, and by the way, if it flies its air power, so cruise missiles are in, in, included in that category. Um, now, we just to continue this discussion on um, lethal aid. Um, and we talked earlier about people trying to categorize weapon systems as offensive or defensive. Uh, and, and there are those out there that are concerned of 
you know, such certain weapons is seen as escalatory from Putin's perspective. Well, that's pure deterrence of the U.S. and NATO by Russia. I mean, as I've said before, Putin would object if we transferred a pocket knife to the Ukrainians. Um, well, so he, again, we're in violent agreement. He he is everything we've done, including the sanctions now are an act of war. So if everything's an act of war, why are we worried about new options that would just also be labeled act of war? And that's why I brought up in my first set of remarks, this whole business now of talking about defensive weapons, I think is a red herring. And, and oh, by the way, uh, if Mr. Putin is launching long range missiles into Ukraine, why wouldn't Ukraine be allowed to launch long range missiles into Russia? Um, again, just like you said, this is this has been deterred by just the way that Mr. Putin speaks about it. And as you know, know as you know, Buona, the, the most effective way uh, to shut down an air force is to kill it on the ground. And that's before they take off. So um, your point's a good one. Uh, let me let me expand this just to one more point. Get your perspectives on um, both the Russians and the Ukrainians have done a good job of using drones. Um, and I've advocated for providing more drones and drone borne munitions that could make a greater difference in interdicting supply lines and slowing Russian movements and taking out things like those 40 mile convoys that are just sitting there, sitting ducks. What are your thoughts on transferring these kind of capabilities, including US built MQ1 Predators? Uh, in MQ-9 uh, Reapers. So I'm for that. But let me qualify what I just said. Along the lines, again, of give them something they can use right away, they are really doing a good job with the Turkish drones, which are yeah. very capable. And so why don't we try to use that as a tool to help re-cement our relationship with uh, Turkey, which we need to do anyway? Yeah. And, and why don't we give them more of the ones that they're used to flying right now? And, and so uh, you're to, the answer to you is yes. But I think I would try now to go for the short term with more of what they're doing from Turkey. And that apparently everything I read on the unclassified side is that drone is performing magnificently. And, yeah, I know and that's and Russia's still good at this. I, I like to, I hate to tell, but I like to tell the story of the battle for, of Debaltseva back in 14. You're aware that right between uh, Lugansk and Donetsk is that valley with the road, railroad infrastructure and the little town of Debaltseva. And the Russian combination of this little, uh, and I don't know the name of it, I, I'm sorry, it's about a a uh, nine meter wingspan uh, drone that the Russians were flying in there. Uh, the combination of that and relatively stupid Grad rockets took an entire infantry battalion off of the battlefield. I'm not talking about making it combat ineffective. I'm talking about it took it off the battlefield. It was about 95% casualties. And so the Russians know how to do this. So I think that we should be thinking about how we can enable them to deny that. Uh, how do we enable the Ukrainians to deny that kill chain to the Russians? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm on the idea with uh, supplying the Turkish drones, working uh, a piece with the Turks, same thing along uh, that perhaps offering uh, or getting the Turks to offer their S-400s that they purchased from Russia yes. to the Ukrainians. Um, uh, all the while, though, we ought to be having folks uh, back training on uh, Ukrainians training on how to operate predators and reapers, because this thing is going to go longer than a couple of weeks. Um, let's shift a bit uh, before we open it up to the audience uh, to the issue of nuclear escalation. Um, if the situation continues to deteriorate for Putin, uh, there are people out there that say, uh, that there's a risk of his using some element of, 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 of mass destruction. And there are political scientists out there recently, matter of fact, in today's New York Times, saying that his nuclear weapons are keeping the West from intervening. Um, should NATO make it explicitly clear that the use of any one of these types of weapons would result in NATO entering the conflict since 
any of them would actually expose the entire continent to the consequences of their use. Yeah, I, um, wow, this is a tough, tough question. I'll start with, I was asked the, the question on NPR this morning and I'll get in trouble for my answer, but they said, is the West able to deter Mr. Putin from using these weapons? And, and my answer was under the current construct under the current approach by our leadership, we are unable to deter because it would take a big policy change like you just talked about for, for NATO and the US, and it would have to be done together. Uh, even though the US is a part of NATO, Mr. Putin's gonna be watching for the independent US voice as well. For, for the US and NATO to make a declaratory policy like you just uh, talked about, I think that would be good, but we still have to convince Mr. Putin that it's a credible uh, threat because, frankly, we have not shown credibility in our uh, in our declaratory policies. And as you and I talked about before, we've backed away from red, red lines in a very public way a couple of times in the not too distant past. So I think it's still a question that if even if we made a strong statement, the West, meaning the US and NATO, um, made a statement that if you use these WMD type uh, weapons, um, we will enter the conflict. I'm still not sure it will do it because our credibility is not very high. But I must say, we've got to do something. You know, uh, you, remember I said, I think we have to deter him, vice him deterring us. And we have to take the initiative, vice reacting to him. And so now we have to make a policy. We have to make decisions in Brussels in the next day or two that would allow us to change our policy and make a statement strong enough that Mr. Putin believes it. And, and that's not going to be an easy lift for NATO and, nor the United States based on how we've acted to this point. <coughs> okay, let me... Um... Let me offer two more uh, softballs. Uh, here's one big picture. I know this involves a lot of speculation, but how do you see this conflict ending? Does Russia negotiate a settlement or do they continue their attacks against civilians in an attempt to destroy their will to fight? So I believe they're try actually at the table trying to get a settlement right now, but <clears throat> because they believe they still have the upper hand, their demands are completely unrealistic. And frankly, Mr. Zelensky's uh, re-counteroffers are completely unrealistic to the Russians. So we're pretty far apart. Um, uh, I hope that we can negotiate an end, but here's what I would never do. First of all, Mr. Zelensky's doing a good job as a wartime president. And, and, and Ukraine should be able to make their own decisions. And what we need to do is not be putting our thumb on him outside of the public to do something against his own sovereignty. Mr. Zelensky is showing a lot more leadership in this than anybody in the West. They'll make their own and best decisions and we need to let them do that. Um, so one would hope that we can make a, uh, a solution, but I would never agree to setting the new lines where they are now. In fact, I wouldn't agree to anything short of all of Ukraine returned to include the Donbass the sticking point, of course, is going to be Crimea. We'll see how that works out. But, but I would, uh, uh, I would not. If I was Mr. Zelensky, I would not sell for anything other than reestablishing the sovereign borders of Ukraine as the world has recognized them for decades. Very um, good. One last question before we go to the audience: Is this event a turning point for Putin and Russia in the context of how they'll be seen? after this war concludes? In other words, does Putin stay in power or will he be removed? It is a turning point. Even if they win at this point, you and I both know his, his uh, military has been outed. He still has a nuclear stick that we're going to have to respect, but his conventional military, we have a whole new understanding of that now. And you and I also know you don't change that in two, three, five years. This is a two decade thing to turn around the kind of problems we've seen. And so uh, Russia will be changed, but, um, but whether Putin lasts or not, 
I think that's going to depend on, you know, we heard today, we saw pretty good credence, 96 to 9,700 deaths on the Russian side. I think Mr. Putin's leadership is going to be challenged in the future. Okay, well, very good. Um, before we go to the audience, let me just offer that I think all's fair in providing weapons to Ukraine, um, you know, up to direct U.S. NATO participation. Um, and it, the Ukrainians, I'd offer fighting on behalf of the complete free world, and therefore we need to support them to the greatest degree possible, not the least that we can get by with, according to the Pentagon lawyers. So we're a superpower, and we need to start acting like one. So with that, let me uh, open it up to the uh, audience uh, and turn to uh, uh, Dick Jonas for the first question. Oh, good gosh. Dick, you got to unmute. My question is in five parts. Do you want me to read them one at a time and let you answer them or you want them all at once? Uh, let's go one at a time, and I'll try to be really quick. Okay, part one. Do you believe that providing Poland's MiG-29s to the Ukrainians would widen the battle area into NATO countries? No. Part two. What if America provided F-16s and or A-10s or Strike Eagles to Ukraine? Well that would be a capability that would not manifest itself for some years down the line because they, they don't have anybody trained and ready in them. And so this is something I think we discuss after the conflict. What about uh, American pilots that know how to fly those machines? We're not going to do that, uh, Dick, because the U.S. would see that as widening the conflict, as would Mr. Putin. That doesn't mean that that some crazy people like me might not recommend it, but we're just not going to do that. Uh, that kind of takes care of my part three. What about F-35s? Obviously, if the F-16s don't go, neither do the F-35s. Part four, do we have any air-delivered munitions which could reach and destroy Russian air platforms firing from Russian airspace? And part five, in your opinion, would that lead to a wider war? So, I, so you and I both know that we have capabilities out there and some we just can't talk about here and there. And some of those really unique capabilities, we may never give uh, uh, Ukraine uh, because of what they are and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I, here's, I'd, I'd rather answer your question really quickly this way. I think we should uh, feel free to offer what the world is calling offensive weapons to Ukraine. In other words, if Russia can fire from anywhere, Black Sea all the way around to uh, uh, Belarus uh, with offensive weapons, then I think that Ukraine ought to be able to fire back with offensive weapons. Absolutely. Okay, Thank you. Th thanks, Dick. Uh, Scott Gray. Uh, Zaytar, can you hear me? Yeah, got you loud and clear. Okay. All right. Hey, appreciate the forum, guys. It was tremendous insight. Really appreciate it. Uh, Buana Scott Gray, your National War College uh, classmate. Uh, yeah, I know who you are. It's the Rogues Gallery here. <laughs> that's right. It is. Hey, uh, you have not addressed cyber. My question for you is um, cyber, even though not a weapon of mass destruction, it can level uh, your financial systems, your comms, your command and control, supply chains, utilities, Transcom. overall quality of life of a nation. So if there is a cyber attack on a NATO country or independently on the U.S., would that be a tripwire in your opinion that would suck NATO in? Would Scott, can I modify your question to say if there were another or more attacks sure. than already a larger? <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you saw what happened when Russia got into the the uh, uh, gas distribution system right. in the southern, southeast United States, they're already fighting us there. They've already in several years ago now, but they've already taken down a, a completely taken down a Baltic nation for a couple of days. Yep. Uh, I mean, the cyber war is ongoing now today. Right. And uh, I think that what we're talking about, the question would be, 
if we see a significant uptick in the frequency or especially the veracity or impact of those, would that be a problem? NATO used to have no policy about this. And in there, they have in the past couple of years actually had a conversation about when and if and could cyber trip Article 5. And if I understand the results of their conversations, they have said yes. And so um, uh, I think cyber is going to be an ever-expanding part of the battlefield, and it already is a part of the battlefield. All right. Well, thank you much. Last question, if I may. Uh, what if there's a uh, nuclear breach at one of the uh, uh, reactors here? What, what's that going to do as far as a tripwire? Okay, I, I think that uh, now I'm just offering you my opinion. I think sure. that the world would have to react to that and say we're going in there to fix it. Okay. If you know the predominant winds in that part of the world, Russia is going to suffer from that yep. quickly. That's they, right. They, they will. And so um, my hope and prayer is that they're smart enough not to go there. But what we have seen already is they got perilously close. Now, I am told I don't have the, uh, the U.S. intel on this, but I'm told from open sources that group of people were fighting in the first instance around the nuclear area were Chechens, and they may mm. not have been under good command and control. And so uh, we would hope now that the Russians would have learned from that and made sure that anything happening in and around nuclear plants would be Russians who are in a little better command and control. Okay. Thank you much. Hope to see you on the 6th of April here with Sandy. All right. Take care. Uh, George. Okay. Let's switch uh, to uh, George Nicholson. George. George, unmute your mic. Okay, George, we'll come back to you. Um, let's go to Abraham Manshi. Abraham. Yeah, good afternoon, gentlemen. Do you hear me all right? Yeah. Okay, so SAC, your General Walters has said that those Polish MiGs are not really appropriate. They wouldn't do much uh, for, for the Ukrainian forces because they're not using their combat aircraft right now. Um, do you guys buy into that because the Ukrainian leadership has called for more combat aircraft um, and they're sort of grounding a lot of their aircraft right now. Do you think that they would take more risks if they had a steady flow of additional combat aircraft? Do you think they could change the air war? What would that mean? Well, first of all, I, I, I want to challenge a little bit something Zaytar said earlier. He's right. They have been on a downtick uh, as far as the Russians, but I'm told yesterday they flew over three, 300 sorties. So they're, they are still capable of and seem to occasionally have the will to fly more. Uh, as far as what uh, Joe Walters is going through right now, I've been there and um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, the, the, the answer that the sector had sound very close to the answer the White House had uh, a couple of weeks before. And so um, I'm, I'm not making any assertions, claims or anything right now. And I'm not trying to start controversy or anything else. But, but um, my guess is uh, that if we gave them these airplanes, at the very least, as Zaytar mentioned, they could become parts bins for the airplanes that they have there now. And I do believe uh, once again, that the Ukrainians are absolutely capable of employing these airplanes if they got them. If I had time, I won't do it. I would tell you the story about the radars we gave them in 2014 and how we thought they would struggle to employ them. And within about six months of battle on the battlefield, they were teaching us new tactics, techniques, and procedures on how to use our equipment. And we learned a lot at Yavriv from their fighters who came back and said, well, if you do this and do this, you get a much better set of performances. And so uh, if they, if we gave them these airplanes, they would certainly find a good way to use them. That's my opinion. Yeah. Let me jump in there, Abraham. And, and let me go again. Um, uh, as uh, John Breedlove just said, uh, without the intent to create a, 
uh, a political uh, uh, hoorah here. Let me let me just offer that Ukrainian MiG-29s have been effective in shooting down Russian aggressors. So um, they are effective aircraft, and they would be put to effective use if they they were given or if they were supplemented. Uh, it uh, offered to be supplemented to the Ukrainian Air Force. All right, let's go to Thomas uh, Sabido. Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I had a question. It has been stated that Russia has used hypersonic weapons. Um, there, is there any evidence aside from their statement that that's occurred? Uh, Thomas, I can't really answer that. I have deliberately, I got exposed to a little bit of classified in the first of this war, and I said I don't want any more. Uh, I am staying away from classified so that I can speak freely. So I have no, uh, I have no positive feedback on whether they were used or not. It appears they have been used. It is also my opinion that is much ado about nothing. Uh, they've fired now, we think, over 1,100 missiles. And that is of consequence. But one more missile that hit a civilian target going really fast has zero impact. I think it was a statement, another attempt to sort of bring fear to our decision leaders that, uh, you know, we're going to start using hypersonic missiles. And, and at this point, my reply would be, have at it. Yeah. I, again, let me jump in there and, uh, uh, Abraham just uh, texted that the president actually has confirmed that the Russians have used uh, missiles that can go a hypersonic speed. And as General Breedlove just stated, hey, a missile's a missile. So uh, one exceeds Mach 5. Great. You know, it hits the target or hits a target or hits a location on the ground and explodes. Um, so what? Uh, let's not make uh, a big deal about uh, uh, a missile being used in a conflict that you really don't need to use it in, but it still created uh, an explosive, uh, an explosion, uh, and was used against an inappropriate target as well. All right, Robert what? Bell. Okay, thank you. Robert? Got it. Uh, hey, Phil, good to see you. Hey, Phil. Bob, how are you? Another hey. rogues gallery, one of my my compatriots in crime over at Georgia Tech. So, Phil, my question has to do about <clears throat> Turkey, and Dave has already mentioned this possibility of the S-400. Uh, the Turks have been extremely helpful with the Bayraker uh, drones, of course. That's been mentioned, too. Same time, Erdogan wants to, like, be a mediator and maintain a relationship with Putin. So what do you know about how far we're looking into this S-400 return to the F-35 program win-win uh, outcome. And uh, do you think the Turks would go that far? Uh, Bob, I, I have been in a, a, a protected conversation on this, so I have to be a bit guarded. I know that we are engaging Turkey on several issues. Uh, you heard the deal about possibly thousands of Syrians. I've heard two different numbers, but thousands of Syrians coming to the fight because we know that, that uh, Russia is having a manpower problem. And so uh, several of us engaged uh, senior leaders and said, why would we ever allow these Syrians to reach the fight? If they're coming by boat, let's work with Turkey on Montreux because there are, as you know, there are stipulations in Montreux about belligerents. Um, if they're coming by air, then we should be looking at forcing them down or diverting them. But we should never allow those Syrians to reach the fight. And so I know that's a conversation we're having with them. And I am led to believe that we are talking about several things on supplying uh, the possibility of supplying the S-400 and other things. But beyond all that, Bob, I, I, I just know the conversations are ongoing and senior leaders are apprised of all the options. And beyond that, I, I have nothing that I can, that I can say. Sorry, buddy. Okay, everyone. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this uh, Aerospace Nation event. Uh, thanks again, uh, General Breedlove, for making the time to talk with us today. It's been absolutely fantastic. 
Um, I know you've got a lot on your schedule uh, and uh, you, you made room for us. So to you and to our audience from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day.